The topic that I want to speak about briefly tonight is a topic that is at the very center of the Buddha Dhamma. This is the mind, what we call citta. The Buddha set out on a quest for a solution to the problem of suffering. And through his investigation, his deep contemplation, he found that the entire causal origination of suffering lies within the mind. And for the same reason, the entire path to liberation is a process of developing the mind. In the period before the arising of the Buddha, the dominant belief amongst the Indian ascetics was the belief that there is some kind of permanent core in the human being. This core is what is called the Atman, or self. And so the whole drive of Indian ascetic practice, Indian meditative practice, was to find the self within. And the self was conceived to be an entity which is without any kind of fixed characteristics, an entity which is permanent, unchanging, eternal, and at its deepest center, extensive with the whole universe. The Buddhas, through his enlightenment, you could say, knocked the self out of the center of the picture of the spiritual quest. And by knocking the self out of the center of the picture, what comes into view as the central object of concern is not an entity which is permanent, unchanging, and without fixed characteristics, but rather the mind itself, the mind which is always individual to each of us, which is always changing, and which displays quite distinctive characteristics. And what the Buddha did with his panya, his wisdom, was to investigate into the nature of the mind and to find that despite all of the diversity in the mind, all its variety, all of its multiplicity, states of mind can basically be distinguished into two fundamental types or categories. These two categories into which the Buddha classified the mind are fundamental to the entire project of finding happiness, even at the mundane level, and achieving ultimate liberation, the world-transcending liberation. So what are these two characteristics, or these two categories into which the Buddha divided the mind? In Pali, he uses the words akusala and kusala. Akusala means or can be translated unwholesome, unskillful, detrimental. And the opposite, kusala, is the mind that is wholesome, 
that is skillful, healthy, or beneficial. And so, when we set out to practice the Buddha Dhamma, to study the Buddha Dhamma, to dedicate our life to following the Buddha's path, the most essential task, we can say, is to understand these two basic tendencies of the mind. To understand that our states of mind, which might be occurring momentarily, which might be arising and passing very quickly, which might often escape our understanding, are still often stamped with these two tendencies, the unwholesome tendency and the wholesome tendency. And when we can understand how the mind falls into these two classes, or tends in these two directions, then we can see that the task of the Buddha spiritual life is to step by step in a systematic way supplant the unwholesome states of mind with wholesome states of mind. To remove the unwholesome states of mind. Let us say first to weaken the tendencies to unwholesome states of mind to strengthen the tendencies to the wholesome states of mind, and eventually to eliminate completely even the subtlest tendencies to the unwholesome mind, and to perfect and fulfill the wholesome qualities of the mind. We find this distinction between the two types of mind running throughout the whole teaching of the Buddha. Even if probably most of you are familiar with the work called the Dhammapada, it's a kind of anthology of discourses, of verses ascribed to the Buddha, arranged according to a number about 24, 27 chapters. How many chapters? 27, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's about 400-something verses organized into 27 chapters. But the very first chapter is called the the chapter of the pairs. And the first verses in this first chapter distinguish the unwholesome mind and the wholesome mind. The lines, the verse goes in Pali, Mano Pubhanga Madhama, Mano Seta, Mano Maya, Manasacha Badutena, Basativa Karotiva, Titonang Dukam Anveti, Chakangva Vahato Padang. All dharmas, we could say that all aspects of our experience are preceded by the mind. Mind is the chief. Mind is the maker. If we, one speaks or acts with an unwholesome mind, a corrupted mind, then suffering follows one, 
just the way the wheel follows the foot of the ox. I don't know how many of you have ever been in South Asia. In South Asia, countries like India, Sri Lanka, even today, or at least the time I left Sri Lanka a few years ago, even in the major city like Colombo, down the main thoroughfare, Gaul Road, right? One sometimes sees these ox, oxen pulling a wagon. The wagon will be loaded with heavy goods, and the ox moves along very slowly, almost, if you we were to personify the expression on the face of the ox, it's a sad face. <laughs> And so it has to move sometimes long distances and always the wheel of the wagon is turning, turning, tur turning right behind the foot of the ox. And so this illustrates the relationship between our, our experience when we do unwholesome deeds and the results that follow from those deeds. When one does unwholesome deeds of body, and speech, then those deeds will lead to suffering. But where do these deeds originate from? Mano Pubhangamadhamma. They originate from the mind. So whenever we act in any kind of harmful, any kind of destructive ways, people kill, they rob, they engage in all sorts of licentious behavior. All of that behavior, where is it originally originating from? Not from the body. The body is just a mass of tissue and flesh. But what impels the body to act is that which lies within the mind. And the mind is always changing, never remaining the same. But Within the mind, there is a factor that the Buddhist texts call chaitana, which means intention, motivation. And so when the intention or motivation is unwholesome, the wish to secure selfishly benefits for oneself, the wish to harm others, then that intention, that factor of the mind, will motivate bodily actions, verbal actions that inflict harm in others, upon others and eventually bring harm back upon oneself. But then the counterpart verse, the very next verse, begins with the same couplet in order to drive the, ho the point home. The first two lines are repeated. Mano all aspects of experience are preceded by the mind. Mind is the chief. Mind is the maker. But then the consequence is different. Manasacha pasanena basativa karotiva tatonang sukam anveti chayava anapayini. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, 
a wholesome mind, a clean mind, then happiness follows, just like one's own shadow that never departs. And so when we think of our shadow, we think of it as being something like a constant companion, something with which we have, we can say, a friendly relationship, because it's almost part of us. And so when we do good actions, wholesome actions, actions which bring benefit to others, which ease the pain of others, which assist and help others, those actions create a force which eventually comes back to us. First, in the present, it gives us an inner feeling of joy and happiness because we are helping others, extending our sense of identity to embrace others, and thus expressing through our actions, words, our deeds, the sense of human solidarity. But also these actions set up within the deep currents of the mind a certain momentum, a certain force, which will bring favorable conditions in the future of this life, in life after life, throughout our future lives. So why do some people, for example, live under relatively comfortable conditions? We have good education, good vocational opportunities, we live in a fair amount of comfort and security, while other people in the world live under very difficult conditions, confronted with constant hunger, war, tyrannical governments. This is a reflection of the karma. And so when we do good actions, this creates the wholesome karma, which will bring happiness and well-being in the future. And where does this wholesome karma originate from? It is an expression, again, of intention, again, of volition. And that intention, volition, originates from the mind. So therefore, once the Buddha has distinguished these two qualities of mind, these two states or tendencies of mind, he makes the core of his teaching the practice of training the mind. To train the mind, one has to understand what is it that makes the mind corrupted. What is it that brings about the unwholesome state of mind? And what is it that is necessary to develop the mind, to purify the mind? Again, the Buddha has looked deeply into the nature of the mind, and he's seen that there are, you say, a whole hostile army of <laughs> inner enemies that one has to confront and eventually overcome. But all of these inner enemies, the whole army, are basically directed by three generals, three commanders in charge of the strat. You could say that they are the ones who plan the strategies of the unwholesome mind, the ones who direct those forces the ones who give the orders 
to launch the attacks against <laughs> our own thoughts. And what are those three inner enemy, three generals? Greed, hatred, and ignorance or delusion. And so out of these three unwholesome roots, there come many secondary defilements. For example, in Sutta number seven of the Majjhima the simile of the cloth, the Buddha speaks about 16 upakilesa, chitas upakilesa, 16 minor defilements of the mind. These include states like what's called unrighteous covetousness, anger, ill will, malice, insolence, pride, conceit, arrogance, hypocrisy, deceptiveness, cunningness, vanity. All of these secondary defilements of the mind are just branches or streams that spill out from the three primary unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, and delusion. And then opposed to them, on the positive side, is the good army, (laughs) the army of beneficial mental forces, the army that includes the foundations of mindfulness, the four types of right effort, the four bases of spiritual power, the five spiritual faculties, five spiritual powers, seven enlightenment factors, eightfold noble path. So these are the factors of mind that one has to cultivate to overcome the unwholesome qualities of the mind. Particularly, one eventually has to break through all of the minor soldiers, the infantrymen, the cavalrymen of the unwholesome mind, and find the three generals in their hiding place who are giving the orders, directing, uh, laying out, planning the strategy, and instigating the infantry and cavalry to launch their attacks. Okay, so how do we overcome these three unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, and delusion? What's interesting about the Buddha's teaching is that he develops many different techniques in order to fit the needs of different people. He's not like the type of doctor who just has, this would be the fraudulent doctor, who just has one type of medicine that's not even a real medicine. He just takes some sugar, puts different mixes, different flavors into it, calls it different medicines, and then he will prescribe it when patients come. Always the same thing, telling them, you take this and you'll get well, you take this and you'll get well. So no matter what the patient is, he's prescribing the same medicine, which is, it's just, what they call this, a panacea. Placebo, a placebo. Some people might get cured, <laughs> but that is just through their, the influence of their own mind. But in fact, 
the doctor is just a phony and the medicine is doing nothing to help. But the Buddha is like a real doctor who understands the different needs of patients. Different patients need different medicines and he prescribes different types of approaches, different techniques, different practices for different people according to the defilements that are dominant within their minds. But in the case of everybody who wants to develop the Buddha's path, we have to find methods to overcome greed, hatred, and delusion. And usually, with greed and hatred, we have to begin at a very elementary level by stilling and stopping the coarser expressions of these defilements. The Buddha has, again, using his wisdom, he has investigated the way the defilements work. And what he's found is that these defilements work at three distinct levels. The coarsest level at which a defilement operates is by motivating actions which give expression to greed, hatred, and delusion. We call this technically that this is defilement in the stage of transgression. This is the stage when the defilement has such a strong impact on the mind that it will motivate bodily action or verbal action, which inflicts harm and suffering on others, and in its coarsest form, will transgress the basic principles of ethical conduct. And so to deal with the defilement at this level, the Buddha lays down precepts as guidelines to right action. So we have, most simply, the five precepts, abstaining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, false speech, and the use of intoxicants. More extensively, we have the code of the ten types of virtuous action, again, abstaining from killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, but then abstaining from lying, from slanderous speech, from angry speech, from idle chatter, and then controlling the mind through over, uh, controlling covetousness, ill will, and holding right view. Okay, so when we undertake the precepts, for example, the five precepts, then we are subjecting our actions to a deliberate effort to prevent them from giving expression to these unwholesome tendencies. So even though we might feel anger and hatred towards somebody, we're not going to attack them physically. We're not going to attack them verbally. Even though we might have greed for somebody else's possessions, by taking the precepts, we don't steal. Even though somebody might have strong sensual desire for the wife of another man, he doesn't make the attempt to commit adultery with that woman. And even though we might want to defend ourselves or to harm somebody else verbally, 
we don't speak in lies that will secure our own advantage or that will harm others. So taking these precepts places a control on the coarsest expression of the defilements so that we restrain those defilements and by doing so what we're actually doing is developing the mind. By taking the precepts we restrain this tendency of the mind to flow out into unwholesome types of actions and we are disciplining the mind to remain within a certain limits, certain perimeter which defines what is proper, what is appropriate, what is ethical. But even though we are controlling our actions, we still have the defilements occurring in the form of unwholesome thoughts, unwholesome emotions. This is the second stage at which the defilements occur, which the Buddhist texts call the stage of Pariyutana, the stage of manifestation, the stage of obsession. In this level, even though the defilements don't motivate action, but they arise in the mind and they cause disturbance, distress, anxiety, and even the tendency, the, a compulsion to engage in unwholesome actions, in a, a compulsion that we are restricting by observing the precepts. But still, in order to develop the mind towards liberation, one has to find ways to overcome this manifestation of the defilements. And this is done through the systematic, methodical development of meditation, what we call bhavana. So we usually take some simple object, often it can be merely the in and out breathing or any kind of wholesome simple object to which one directs one's attention. And so when one chooses the breath, one is attempting to be mindful of each in-breath, each out-breath, each in-breath, each out-breath. But what is happening as one is attempting to attend to the breath? At the beginning, what this does is to throw up what I would call a white background to the working of the mind. Normally we don't see very clearly how our minds work because we're usually so swept away with the rush of activity that thoughts just rush through the mind one after another and we act under the dictates of our thoughts without reflecting back to see what are these thoughts, what are these states of mind, what is arising and motivating us. But when one takes the simple object and makes the attempt to fix the mind on that object without straying from it, what one starts to see are the patterns of one's thinking. And so each person will have their own very complex patterns of thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, 
worries, fears, plans, projections, hopes, images, judgments. But through the effort to keep the mind on one object, first this pattern becomes clear. Again, it's like shining the spotlight on the workings of the mind, illuminating them. Then, as one continues with the effort to keep the mind on the object, eventually, the, uh, at some point, this creates open space by which the compulsive energy within these thought patterns, these emotional patterns, this burst of energy that sustains these patterns starts to become weakened. And the patterns, space opens up between the lines of thought and emotion that are normally connected within these patterns. And so one starts to experience a kind of opening of the mind, a calming down of the mind, a subsiding of these patterns, until through continued persistent practice, the mind can become very still, very peaceful, very quiet, in which there are no more afflictive emotions arising, no disturbing thoughts, and the mind is immersed in a very quiet state of samadhi or concentration. Now, before the time of the Buddha, there were, and even in India now, there are yogis who master the practice of concentration, the practice of samadhi, and so they can remain, when they sit in meditation, they can go very quickly into these states of deep absorption. And when they come out and engage in their ordinary activities, the mind is still so peaceful and so calm, so centered, that they believe that this is liberation. This is the culmination of the spiritual path. What the Buddha discovered is that underlying the state of deep calm, perfect peacefulness, the defilements are still intact, but they are existing at a different level. This is the level of what the Buddhist texts call anusaya, which means the level of the underlying tendencies, the deep tendencies the latent tendencies to the defilements. And so, if one doesn't realize that this level exists, one might become quite satisfied with the attainment of this peaceful meditative state. One develops perhaps a subtle attachment to it, a liking for it. And that subtle attachment to the peace of deep concentration sustains the movement of the mind through the course of this life and drives it on to continued migration within samsara, within the round of rebirths. And so what the Buddha uniquely discovered was that in order to gain liberation, it's necessary to uproot the underlying tendencies to remove them, 
from their hiding place in the cellar or basement of the mind and to remove the underlying tendencies it's not sufficient to develop deep samadhi but one has to supplement concentration with the next stage of training this is the training in panya wisdom or insight wisdom or insight is not the process of centering the mind just on one object, but it is the quality that arises from investigation and examination. Through the practice of mindfulness, one attends to the changing stream of experience, watching what is occurring through the successive moments of one's experience. And as one sustains one's attention, one's mindfulness on the changing current of experience, the true characteristics of all experience come to the surface, become evident. And so what are these true characteristics of all experience that are to be discovered through the practice of observation. As one is observing the experience, one sees there's the body, there is the mind. One sustains the attention on the body, and one sees that the body, what we call the body, is actually a stream or current of physical events, events at the material level, events that are always, each one, arising and passing, arising and passing. So, using the beam of insight, the beam of wisdom, one looks into the body and one sees how the body is a combination of momentary events always arising and passing very quickly, arising and passing very quickly. So in this way, one gains, with regard to the body, the insight into impermanence, that the body is impermanent. And what is impermanent, always changing, cannot be taken to be I or mine, myself. Okay, then one turns to the mind, examines the mental process, and we, we, one sees that what we call the mind, again, is a succession of mental events, feelings, perceptions, volitions, acts of knowing, thinking, mental events that are again arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And so the body is an impermanent process, the mind is an impermanent process. And now what holds all of these defilements in place at the level of the underlying tendency is a clinging to the notion of self, clinging to the notion that body and mind are in some way mine, what I am, my real self. And so when one gains the insight into the impermanent nature of body, into the impermanent nature of mind, 
one then investigates them against this notion of self to which which is the object of clinging and so one clings to body taking body to be myself one clings to mind taking mind to be myself but when one looks and sees the body is impermanent then one realizes the body is not mine not I not myself when one examines the mind and sees the mind is always changing arising and passing away one sees the mind is impermanent and so the mind cannot be mine cannot be I cannot be myself and so in the body there's nothing to which to cling in the mind there's nothing to which to cling and thus the deep fundamental clinging the clinging centered on the notion of self falls away and with the falling away of clinging the mind is liberated liberated from all of the defilements liberated irreversibly from the defilements liberated in such a way that there is no trace of any defilements left in the mind and that is the final liberation of mind which is the ultimate goal in the practice of dhamma so most of us might be relative beginners in fact it's always good to think we are just beginners in the practice of dhamma but it's also useful to have a clear notion of what we are trying to do in the practice of dhamma we are trying to understand the nature of the mind especially to understand the distinction of the unwholesome mind and the wholesome mind and we are trying to shape the mind to develop the mind and this means to weaken the unwholesome tendencies and to strengthen and perfect the wholesome purifying tendencies of the mind and then finally we are aiming to liberate the mind which occurs when sila moral discipline samadhi concentration and especially panya or wisdom come to maturity okay perhaps this will be my talk and <laughs> i thank you for your attention do you have a fixed way to end the or should i do it through chanting some pali verses to share the merits okay when we practice meditation when we speak on the dhamma when we listen on the dhamma all of these activities create what we call punya wholesome karma or merit punya merit or wholesome karma and so in buddhism we say that we shouldn't keep this wholesome karma to ourselves but we should share it with other beings and so though we can't see them but there are certain beings which are called deities dhamma protecting deities their job is to protect the dhamma in the world but they'll only look after human beings if human beings share merit with them if we don't share merit with them then they lose interest in us and they <laughs> remain in their heavenly worlds and we go our own way without their help 
So we share the merit with the Dhamma-protecting deities, asking them to rejoice in the merit and thereby to protect the Dhamma in your own community here as well as in the world as a whole. Then we also share the merit with there are certain fierce spirits which often they can create harm and misery for people. But when we share the merit with them, then they become like fierce our fierce defenders who will protect us in times of difficulty, who will knock away our <laughs> enemies who are trying to harm us. They won't, ha- <laughs> they won't harm the enemies, but they just prevent them from inflicting harm on us. And then also we share the merits with all beings who are able to receive these merits and thereby be well and happy. So I'll receive some, I'll recite some verses composed in Pali centuries ago, which are used in the in Sri Lanka for the sharing of the merits. Okay, as you listen in your own heart, you can generate thoughts of loving kindness, extending those thoughts up to the Deva world, the world of the deities extend them to the fierce, protective spirits, and also share them with all beings, especially those undergoing throughout the world who are undergoing pain, suffering, oppressed by hostile governments, by poverty, hunger, war. Akasata chabumata Devanaga mahidika Punyantanganumoditva Chirang rakantu sasanang Akasata chabumata Devanaga mahidika Punyantanganumoditva Chirang rakantu desanang Akasata chabumata Devanaga mahidika Punyantanganumoditva Chirang Rakantu Mangparang Etavatachamhehi Sampadang Punya Sampadang Sabe Deva Anumodantu Sabha Sampati Siddhya Etavata Chamhehi Sampadang Punya Sampadang Sabe Bhuta Anumodantu Sabha Sampati Siddhya Etavata Chamhehi Sampadang punya sampadang Sabe sata anumodantu Sabha sampati siddhya 
Bhavagupadhaya avici hetato etantare satakayupapana rupia rupicha asanya sanyino dukapamuchantu pusantu niputing What's interesting about that last verse, I think I had learned that at Island Hermitage in Dota Dua, where I spent my first vasa, my first rains retreat as a bhikkhu. And somehow I've remembered it through the years and used it through the years. But 2006, I was in Sri Lanka, like, was giving some lectures at the Buddhist Publication Society, and I end with reciting the same set of verses. When I was reciting the first three verses, the second three verses, people in the audience were reciting along with me. When I came to that last verse, only one person was reciting along with me, and this was a German monk who had been in Sri Lanka for many years, and who was ordained and trained at the island hermitage. Did, did you hear that first ever in Sri Lanka? Bhavagupadaya vichy hetato? Who's ever Sri Lankan? <laughs> but have you heard that verse? No. But you know, etavatacha mehi and akasatacha bhumata. So I think it might come, you see, Venvalyana Tiloka, the founder of the island hermitage, had been ordained in Burma. Are there any Burmese people here? The Burmese monks have recited that. So it must have come from Burma (laughs) into Sri Lanka, only at the island hermitage, and I picked it up there. Okay, so I'll explain the meaning. Bhavag upadaya avici hetato. Bhavaka means the highest realm of existence. So upadaya means, here it means from. So from the highest realm of existence, avici hetato, at the bottom, the lowest, is avici. That's supposed to be the most terrible hell. Etantare satakayupapana. Whatever living beings there are who have been reborn herein, that is within the space from the highest heaven, that's the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, down to avici hell. Rupi arupi, they're being distinguished, those that have bodily form, those who are formless. Asanyi sanyino, those who are without perception, those who are with perception. Tukha pamuchantu pusantu niputing. Dukapamuchantu, may they be free from suffering. Pusantu nibuting. Nibuti means perfect peace. It's basically a synonym for nibbana. And pusantu, may they reach, may they touch, may they attain. So may they be freed from suffering, may they attain the peace of nibbana. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.